0: Hey, it's Jeff. I began my life really connected to myself as an embodied being. I knew young Jeff as a deeply feeling, wholeheartedly lived experience from deep within my body. And then the world had its way with me, as it does for so many of us. And I became whatever I had to become to survive my circumstances and claim my stake in the world. The journey back into my body, or perhaps better worded, into a more integrated experience of my body, was and continues to be greatly challenging. Primarily because I live in a world that celebrates and in many ways benefits from my disembodiment. What a price we pay for that. Being split off from our body means being severed from our intuition, our sovereignty our clarity as to who we are and why we're here. We can't find any of that if we're living in fragments or lodged deeply and exclusively within the mind itself. This is one of the primary reasons why I reject the notions of presence advocated for by patriarchal spiritualities. In their efforts to confine presence to singular threads of consciousness to allegedly transcending the human fray, to a notion of enlightenment that doesn't include our bodies, our feelings, our stories, our selfhood. They confuse self-avoidance with awakening. But it's not awakening, it's a sleepening. Because if we aren't experiencing and exploring the sacred from deep within our bodies, then we're not actually here. It all sounds very good, be here now, power of now, but it means nothing if we're not experiencing presence as a fully embodied whole being experience. Today's guests saw through our disembodied cultural conditioning at a young age, and thank God and goddess for that. Philip Shepard is now a leader in the global embodiment movement. He's the creator of the Embodied Present Process, T-E-P-P, TEP), which provides both potent insights into how our culture desensitizes the body and a series of over 150 practices to help people renew their sensitivity to the world and reclaim their calm, centered presence in it. He shares TEP worldwide through in-person workshops and facilitator trainings. And has articulated the need for a new, more embodied way of being in two utterly brilliant books Radical Wholeness and New Self, New World. Both books identify the causes, perils, and challenges of our culture's disembodiment. Philip's personal path to embodiment includes a two year journey as a teenager, during which he traveled alone by bicycle through Europe, the Middle East, Iran, India and Japan. He also studied classical Japanese no theater, co founded an interdisciplinary theater company, wrote two internationally produced plays and a television documentary, designed and built several houses, co founded an arts magazine called Onion, played lead roles on stages in London, New York, Chicago, and Toronto and earned a reputation as a coach, both with individual clients seeking a deeper experience of embodiment, and for corporate clients seeking to improve their presentation skills. He's been busy. He developed TEP with his co-director and wife, Allison Woodruff, also a Renaissance person, who also shares the practices in person. His website and online courses are found at embodiedpresent.com. His newest book, Deep Fitness, was co-authored with Andre Yakovenko and offers a revolutionary and highly effective approach to fitness. In this talk, Phil and I get into the nooks and crannies of re-embodiment. I've known him for years, and I am always amazed by the way that he continues to reach for wholeness, both with respect to his offerings to the world and also with respect to his own internal processes. This is not a revolutionary who rests on his laurels. He lives the quest, never for one moment imagining himself at a point of completion. And it shows as he continues to take Tep to the next level of integration and genius. Speaking of genius, here's a little bit of Trevor Hall's song, Arrows, before we begin. And for the perfect musical complement to this conversation, check out Trevor's album, In and Through the Body. In and Through the Body. It's a true piece of art.
1: Got me bleeding a certain kind of feeling ah, ah, ah. but I can never leave it. Good God I know I need it ah, ah, ah. The arrows come straight for my heart.
0: Welcome, so much welcome, Philip.
1: Such a pleasure to be here. Just, thank it's, been, you. it's been a long time coming.
0: I was thinking today about, not the first time I met you, because I think I'd known you for a long time on, on Toronto Island, because they'd lived down the road from you, my um, dear friend. But I remember I was working on Carmageddon with him quite often on Sundays, and, and at the same time I was writing my first book, Soul Shaping. And I would encounter you wandering about now and then, sort of in this sort of ponderous looking state. And we talked a little, and it was became very evident to me that you were in what I thought was a very similar kind of self originating process around your own creative work, that you were inside of some book that wouldn't let you sleep at night unless you honored the voice. It was like a calling. It, it's, you know, a lot of people in, in this field were in, in my experience, are, you know, They figure out what book to write by going to the bookstore and figuring out what the next thing to write a proposal is, and then you submit a proposal, and then you eventually get a book deal, and you write a book. But I've encountered very few people who are just seized by the absolute need to express something in written form, even if it ruins their life. And I identified you as one of those people while you were working on New Self, New World, that you were self-originating. This is the language that made sense to me. I mean, does that resonate with you, that that's that's what your
1: experience was? Completely resonates. I've had people, because it took me 10 years to write that book. I rewrote it from scratch four times. And like each draft, it's like I had this river to ford. And each draft was like a stone as far as I could reach into the river. And then there it was. And then I could stand on that stone and get the next one. And people have said, oh, you know, how how wonderful that you persevered for 10 years. And I say, no, 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 you don't understand. It was more painful not to be writing than to be writing. It was an absolute necessity. And as you say, I was seized by it. And it obsessed me totally for 10 years. And it was, I mean, I like your phrase self-originating because, you know, the gift of the writing process is that you put your thoughts down on paper as clearly as you can, and, and they're unassailable. And then you come back a week later and you look at it, as though someone else had written it, and you test it, and you push it, and you prod it, and you raise it until all that's left is this shining truth. And that's what I did for 10 years with every phrase of this book. It's
0: beautiful. It's beautiful. And then what was even more interesting was that my... my uh, manuscript for Soul Shaping and your manuscript for New Self, New World landed the same day, I believe, on the desk of Richard Grossinger at North Atlantic Books, and both of us were ultimately published by him. And So it was very clear throughout this process that there was something going on with me and you, and something going on with this self-originating tendency, rather than moving through the world From a culturally sourced point of reference, we were never really believing anything anybody told us, and we're just trying to forge our own understanding through our own lived experience. And in my experience, that's somewhat rare and might be the key to everything
1: somehow. I think it's necessary at this juncture. I think... Every culturally received understanding or institute of wisdom or teaching is deeply tainted with patriarchy in one form or another. All these traditions, they have shining gems and they have deep limitations. And I can learn from benefit, grow through the gems without sort of acceding to the limitations. Mm-hmm.
0: Brilliant. So I was thinking about looking over your second book, another absolutely brilliant opus called Radical Wholeness, uh, and I wrote the book forward for it, so I know the book fairly well. And I was thinking about this moment when you were 18 years old, and I want you to share a little bit about it in a moment, but where you had a decision to make. And I think this is such an important thing because so many young people, as they step out into something called adulthood, for many, many years and many, many generations did what their survivalistic and well-intended parents told them to do. You know, whatever that was that was going to get food on the table, was going to create a reliable income, was going to create a stable structure within society, all those things. And for some reason, I think you were faced with the prospect of going to university and studying physics, if I'm not mistaken, you made another decision. And I think it's really important to energize the decision to move off of doing the thing that mommy and daddy tell you to do, to do the thing that your soul tells you is absolutely required for you. So I just want to read a little piece from Radical Wholeness and then ask you to just share with us what your inner narrative was at that moment in your life, this profoundly important moment in your life where you decided to not walk in the direction of what was typical societally and to find your own way. So let me just read this part. Uh, it's from page, pages three and four. But I knew that if I didn't venture down that path into the dark unknown, if I remained within my culture, I would succumb to a more certain sort of death. I felt the specter of that different death very specifically as a teenager. I felt that my being was tangled in a web strung with values, habits of behavior, and ways of understanding that I had inherited from my culture. That web bound my very thinking, such that I could feel it being pulled into staunchly established patterns. A bias for adhering to those patterns had been seeded into my being Before I was old enough to question them, which meant that I myself was the carrier. I love that. Within me hid prohibitions against my own freedom of being and against the experience of my own wholeness. I was compromised by inner structures that interpreted reality for me. Those structures, part of my flesh and my neurology, that's so important, defined what felt normal to me. I knew myself and my world only through the prism of my blinkered culture, and I knew I would suffocate if I remained within it. Close quote. Absolutely beautiful. So please tell us about that moment and the decision that you made and how that decision that you made informs this very brilliant work that you're doing right now with the embodied present model.
1: I was in a rage as a teenager from like the age of 15, 16 on. And it was a rage burning like an ember deep in my being. I mean, I could feel it, as I would say now, deep in my pelvic bowl. This, you are not going to take me down. And that phrase is addressed to my culture and the institutions into which I'm being shuttled by my life. And boy, that, you know, I could see, you know, going to university, it's like a train running according to schedule. And you, you know, you go to university and maybe you do postdoc and you meet someone and get married and and buy a house and have kids and blah, blah, blah. And it, it was like all set and ready for me to step onto that train and let it carry me. And it would be a concession to death. And, you know, I say when I took off, I, so I, I left home and I went to England and I bought a bike and I took off for Japan. Now, you know, as an 18-year-old, that's the most ridiculous thing you can think of. And yet, you know, here's this bicycle. And if you get on it and you start pedaling and you're headed in the right direction and you don't stop, you will get there. I didn't, honestly, I didn't fully expect to come back alive. I mean, how do you cycle alone through the Middle East and 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 be naive about about what you're going into? But I knew that if I stayed, what was most valuable to me which was my freedom, my agency, my, the clarity of seeing, the clarity of my being, that would be extinguished. That would be, because I could feel it being smothered. I use that word. I could feel it being smothered by my culture. And the most difficult thing in the world is to question what you've normalized to, what you've habituated to. How do you raise it? It's like, how does a fish formulate a question about water, when it's all it's ever known? How do you question your own culture when you've been raised in it, nurtured by it, and it's all you've ever known? So, the trip on the bike, I knew it would take me into the unknown. It felt like stepping off a cliff and let's see what happens. Every culture that i visited, and there's so many cultures you pass through on a bike, and you're open to them, and you feel the people in a different way than you would if you are in a, in a car. And every culture was luminous, and every culture was limited. And the only time I suffered culture shock was when, after two years, I returned home. And suddenly, this world that was so deeply familiar to me seemed utterly arbitrary and bizarre. I was used to other ways by then. I, I'd lived in Japan for seven months. And, and so, I had gained the ability to question my culture, to bring questions to bear on it. And I'd studied Japanese classical Japanese no theater in Japan. And they revere hara, the Japanese word for belly. Every impulse when no actor arises from that intelligence and expresses itself through gesture. When the head turns and sees, it is seeing from that place. And so I'd been introduced to this other way of being that seemed more intimate, more grounded, and more real to me. And then what?
0: How did that inform decision making with respect to how you would function get by survive or thrive
1: in the culture itself so all my life i've been an actor every exercise an actor enters into every role an actor undertakes is just another exploration of how to be present And I wasn't present as an actor to begin with. And whoa, that's interesting. And what's going on? And so the more freedom I gained as an actor. And an actor, you deal with the body, you deal with the breath, you deal with your your true impulses. If you're, you know, if you're doing it by rote, your performance is wooden, it doesn't work. You have to be alive to the moment and responsive to the moment. And the more freedom I gained within that arena, the more freedom I gained in my daily life. And vice versa, the more freedom I gained in my daily life. More freedom I was able to bring on the stage, and I worked in physical theater. I mean, I co-founded a company called Physical Theater Company in 1983 before there was a term physical theater. And I worked with a dancer and a mime as the three co-directors of that company, and we trained young people in it, and we trained each other. I became very, very close to Stephen Rumbelow, who was a really a well-known pioneer of physical theater in London, England, who moved to Toronto, and I drank up uh, what he had to offer. And this, to give freedom to the impulses of the body, to let them fly and live and collide, is to undo the shackles that our culture births us into in this cultural context we so deeply habituate to. I mean, my
0: experience has been that, you know, I survived by my wits, like a good Jewish boy. I went to law school. My mind was organized and oriented in that direction. And it was very clear to me at some point that I could spend my whole life actively and successfully inside of my mind without ever knowing until perhaps the final moments that i actually had a body. and this is the experience of so many people that i know that we are able to get by in this culture by living primarily through cerebral constructs. how were you were you able you know your mind is very powerful. were you able to remain in balance with respect to the body or did you find it very difficult, as many of us have, to get out of our heads in this culture?
1: Yeah, I mean, I found it hugely difficult. It was a massive challenge. I mean, you know, anyone afflicted with a you know an above average intelligence is going to learn very quickly that it's a very useful. Resource to lean on for solving problems and getting ahead and figure, figuring things out. We're immersed in a culture of disembodiment and disembodiment is just another form of forgetfulness. And that forgetfulness in our culture is not a new thing. You go back to a dialogue that Plato wrote called Timaeus. And this, we're talking 350 BC. Timaeus is this wise man, and someone asks Timaeus, how did the gods fashion us? And Timaeus replies, well, first, they fashioned this divine orb based on the spheres of the heavens. And then they realized this divine orb needed to be able to move around, so they grew it a vehicle, arms and legs and a trunk. So 350 B.C., The head is being experienced as the divinest part of us, in Plato's words, and the body is a vehicle. So, this forgetfulness of our culture is a severing of our most primary bond. The bond, I mean, if you dissociate from the body, you dissociate from what the body understands, which is that it belongs to the world. I mean, you look at a tree and you're present to that tree and you feel that you belong to each other. You share this moment. And and that, to me, our entire culture is clasping forgetfulness to it and trying to persuade itself that it can outthink any problem. And the problem is not one of needing solutions. The problem is one of needing harmony. Harmony is a product of wholeness. There is no harmony where there is division. And until we come back to the body, until we recover its sensational attunement to the world around us, I don't see any possibility of coming back into harmony with the world.
0: I just want to read this quote from Radical Wholeness. Embodiment isn't about sitting in the head and paying attention to the part of you we call the body. It's about fully inhabiting the intelligence of the body and attuning to the world through it. It's about listening to the world through the body. It's about feeling the world through the breath. For our purposes, then, we might say that embodiment is the state in which your entire intelligence is experienced as a coherent unity attuned to the world. In that state, any distinction between mind and the body's energy becomes meaningless. Um, I've been thinking a lot lately about what happens collectively and culturally if we start to get more embodied. You know? Not just on an individual level, feeling more self-connected, feeling more centered, feeling more rooted, feeling more intuitive, feeling more alive to the moment in the ways that you and I both know matter. But what happens to the economic structures? What happens to the patriarchy? What happens to the religious and spiritual worlds? What happens to the political world if we become so embodied, so centered, so clarified, so rooted and self-possessed? that we immediately see through the veils. We see all of the bullshit everywhere, and we no longer wish to engage in any of the games that currently control us. And I've been thinking about all the ways in which, on very subtle levels, we are prevented, whether it's with, because of overwhelm, or because of dissociative tendencies, or because of you know, some economic benefit to disconnecting and dissociating, there are so many ways in which we are prevented systemically from knowing ourselves as an embodied experience, and and I asked Andrew Harvey this in a good friend of yours as well in the first podcast. Given that we're at this horrifying precipice as a species, you know, I think it's safe to say this really is the very beginning of a very real collective dark night of the soul. How can we re-embody, reintegrate? solidify and center ourselves from the feet down and up in time to bring ourselves back from this horrifying abyss that primarily is as a result of patriarchal disembodiment structures?
1: So I think, you know, there are three things that come to my mind. One is to recognize how relentlessly the structures and institutions and economic systems reinforce that we should be living in our head. What is our economic system? It's capitalism. What does the word capitalism mean? It means headism. Capitalis, Latin for head. Our economic system is called headism. I I mean, it's it's there everywhere. The, The leader of the church isn't called the the heart of the church, even though this is an institution based on love, not called the lungs of the church, even though it's an institution based on spirit and spirit and breath of the same word. No, the leader of the church is the head of the church, the CEO, chief executive officer, chief is a uh, comes from a Latin word meaning head. It, it, it captain of a football team, the captain comes from capitalis, head. It's the same thing. So. Our institutions are top down as a mirror of how we live in our own bodies. And so we are, we are drawn in by that reflection. We recognize and accord with its values and its blandishments and its warnings, its insemination of fear. We respond to that because we live in our heads and their messages are directed to that disembodied state. So how then do we come back to the earth? I think we need to recognize that the brain is not the mind, that mind suffuses the whole of your being. There is no cell in your body that doesn't participate in your thinking. So this schism that, speaking of institutions, our school system has indoctrinated us in, that thinking and being are separate. This is the overarching lesson of public education, that the body is to be suppressed and controlled and made to sit still while you fill the head with the information, with the answers that will get you the nod of approval when your test comes back. And the whole system is geared towards coming up with the right answers. There is almost no nurturing of the ability to pose questions, which is a much more crucial skill. And it is a skill how to ask a question. And to me, you know, the most important questions arise from the body there are trivial questions that the head deals with, and sometimes not so trivial. But the questions that matter, they come up from the body. So to me, the the journey back to the body goes through two phases. And I think it's really important to recognize how that happens. And the first stage is just to bring sensation back to the body. I mean, we cast the pelvic bowl in darkness. We don't feel the breath in it. We lose the legs. They, they act like prosthetics. The legs team with intelligence. They are, they're the conduits to the living earth. And yet we, we perambulate around on them and don't, and feel, feel nothing. So how, and then, you know, the body is shut down by trauma and how to recognize all of that and gently, gently bring that Those orphaned energies, as I understand them, back into a remembrance of love, back into a a place where they feel they can integrate. And the body once again becomes this miracle of sensation. And it is so alive. And that's the first stage. And the second stage for me is that sensitivity of the body then dilates into the world so the body feels the world as its body and it tunes to it and feels the sensitivity of the present and in that state you know my body feels empty there is room within my body for all the world to be felt it's empty as a singing bowl is empty ready to resonate to the world we're so mired in this ageless tradition that the head should be in charge, that the body is a vehicle, that the body doesn't think that the mind and the brain are synonymous, that to allow the danger of life coming back to the body is a big step. And it, and it, it, you know, it's volcanic at times. And then that settles down and the grace of being empty to the world and feeling its guidance. And, you know, being empty to the world doesn't mean you're not, you're not centered, but that center is in relationship to the life around you and finds guidance there and, and the means to move forward. It is, it is a sense for me of being carried forward. That is what, how embodiment feels to me. Mm. It's beautiful.
0: I think about, you know, look back on my significant moments of decision-making in my life, you know, for a long time, I, I would spend often felt like years inside of my mind going down the same pathways, arriving at the same absence of clarity with respect to important decisions. And when I could finally, sometimes in the simplest and unexpected ways, find my way Down into my body, into the cavern. I often could find my answer there right at the tail end of an emotional release or right in the heart of a holotropic breathwork or, you know, right in the midst of a long walk on Toronto Island, um, where something about my feet making contact to Mother Earth somehow granted me access to my intuitive knowing. And I think of bad decisions I've made, they either came from the mind or they came from my being inside of the body in a still unclear and fragmented way. The more clarified and integrated I was, the more connected I was to the healthy parts of my intuition. I remember this very clearly because there was a period at which every time something synchronistic appeared to happen, I thought it was a sign that I was supposed to move in its direction. And this was not a very grounded or embodied way of perceiving reality. This was a, an experience of being partway in. Because when I got all the way in, and of course, life forced me all the way in, what I realized was it was always easy to recognize synchronistic occurrences, but it wasn't always easy to figure out if they were good for me. and. The farther I went into the body, the farther I went into my feet and into a place of integration, the more, I, more likely I was to make the right decisions about which direction to go. I couldn't get there through my mind and I couldn't get there through a fragmented experience of the body. So if I was all bunked up with all kinds of unresolved emotional material that really needed to move on through in order for me to have space inside the cavern for clarity, in order to come back into a state of integration and maturation also. If I didn't do that work, it was all choppy, halfway between my head and caught between a rock and a sort of unhealed heart place or something. The release work for me, uh, the intense release work, brought me down deeper into my body. And afterwards, I had absolute clarity about my directionality. I couldn't find it anywhere else.
1: Yeah, I really have come to believe you cannot integrate what hasn't been expressed. You can't just say, oh, here's something that needs integrating and it's been robbed of its voice. You can't push it down and integrate it. So there's the step of, of releasing it, of letting it be expressed, and then to gather that energy and soften it down into the body and allow it to integrate. And both parts of that journey. Are necessary. And, you know, someone someone once asked me in a workshop, do you always trust your body? And I said, no. I trust wholeness. And what I meant by that is, is what I trust isn't some stimulus, some insight, some thing held within the body. It's when I am at rest in the present and I allow that to settle down and... Dilate into the whole, and the clarity is brought by that wholeness, and that's the clarity I've come to trust. And I think, you know, I think there's a lot of talk about self regulation, and part of me is mistrustful of that. I think, you know, for me, there are things I do that you could call self regulation. You know, if I'm my energies bunged up. It, oh, look, my breath, my body's not releasing the breath and I surrender the body to the breath or my energy's held off from the earth and I surrender to the earth. But it's it's the surrender that facilitates that settling. And ultimately, the things I most deeply cherish, whether it's grace, whether it's stillness or calmness, whether it's clarity, you know, whatever it is I most deeply yearn for, to me, these are qualities that belong to the present. And as I surrender to the present, I partake of those qualities. I don't possess them, but I partake of them. And there is no substitute for that for me. And so, the idea of self-regulation buys into our cultural obsession, which is with organizing. I mean, we bloody organize everything. That's what the head specializes at. And we organize our thoughts, and we organize our feelings, and we organize our responses, and we organize and organize. And and when that becomes an obsession, it's impossible, I think, to be present. Because for me, the experience of being fully present is an experience of feeling myself being organized by the present. I am being touched by it. I'm being informed by it. I'm being regulated by it. I'm being guided by it.
0: I think about, I feel like so much of what your work is about is about inviting people to trust an experience that either they've never had or that they once had to some extent but now associate with inevitable suffering. You know, I remember when I did a holotropic breathwork with Stan Groff, who was just absolutely and utterly brilliant. A pioneer, and uh, like you are. And the first breathwork, we were at the Governor Dummer Academy, Jack Cornfield, and Stan, Insight and Opening. Jack was doing Vipassana, which I started calling bypassana because I just felt like it just wasn't getting to the heart of the matter. And then we were doing holotropic, which was God's of the heart of the matter. You know. But the first time I, I stopped short, the intensification of the breath, I was frightened by it. And I asked, I asked Stan the next time, because we're going to do another one. How do I do that? How do I, you know, he said, just trust your breath. Just trust your breath. So simple, but so complicated. I didn't trust my breath. I didn't trust my feelings. I didn't trust my body. I associated my body with inevitable pain and suffering. And I remember it took absolutely all I had to be able to just trust him. And then to trust my breath enough to go deep inside of this wild, Cathartic three hour that felt like three thousand hours, releasing my mother, throwing her off my back, and I I believe that experience transformed my my life because I remember before that experience I would sit in front of this field of bulrushes at the Governor Dummer Academy. I was there to get dumber, but yet smarter, and I felt as though these bulrushes I felt the separateness. I felt there you know there's a bulrush, there's another, there's another, and then afterwards. I had this release experience, and then I went and sat in front of it and felt completely unified and connected. And it was absolutely clear to me that it, it, for me, it almost always seemed to come through releasing and discharging and stabilizing and reintegrating within the body itself. But getting people to trust that experience, and i had had an early life experience of presence as a whole being experience on my family lawn, opening, discharging, crying, releasing. I cried for years and years. I tantrumed. I had it in my mind and I guess in my body that if I didn't release my mother and her tyrannical ways were going to win. I knew that my mother was not healthy at a very early age. So I resisted and rebelled. I tantrumed in my crib. I knew this was the way I preserved the integrity of my being, energetically and emotionally. I didn't have words for it. It was a feeling, it was a felt experience. So I had a memory of that. So by the time I got to Groff, even though it was quite terrifying, there was some part of me that knew I had a place to go again that was a good-feeling place. The spell of the sensuous, as David Abram called it. Um, and many people haven't had that early life experience that I had of clearing, releasing, moving stuff on through, coming back to freshness of appreciation, what I call beginner's, beginner's heart. Rather than beginner's mind, because really that's what it is. So, in your work with people doing this utterly brilliant work with the embodied present model, I mean, you've developed hundreds, probably thousands of techniques by now to encourage people to reconnect with their experience of their body. What has been your experience of like what's in the way in terms of what kind of container has to be created? I guess that's what I'm asking in order for people to feel safe enough to begin to explore or re-explore an experience of themselves within their body.
1: So, uh, you know, a couple of things come to mind. Every practice I've developed has as its intention to resensitize us to a relationship that we've been dulled to. And there are so many relationships, you know, within the body, between the body and the world, on and on. And the quality of coming into relationship is most facilitated by gentleness so you know if you if you move a baby's arm into a sleeve gently you feel the whole baby you feel its life and you can just kind of guide it in and it's the gentleness that gives you the sensitivity to do that so to bring that quality of gentleness to body work and to keep it as neutral as possible in a way. And what I mean by that is I don't put focus on emotion. There's lots of room for emotion. Emotion comes, emotion goes, but I don't focus on it. And the reason for that, you know, I feel emotion is like a lens that pulls some aspect in the, of the world into focus whether it's love, whether it's anger. And putting the focus on the emotion can denature it. It's like like the finger points to the moon, but you're staring at the finger. And emotion isn't a natural subject to be held and examined. Emotion flows through you. It's in motion, and it pulls the world into focus. But let it move. Let it move. you know, rather than putting attention on and saying, what is this and why is it happening And, and, and all that stuff. I'm not saying there's not a place for that. I'm just saying that's not my approach. So, I would rather, for example, put the attention on the breath. And when you say, you know, I'm inviting people into experiences they may never have had or they've had a long, long ago, every baby releases its body to the breath. There's no baby that that, you know, makes itself have a deep breath. You know, I would never say to somebody, take a deep breath. I just wouldn't because the head knows exactly what that means and goes ahead and makes the body do it. The body knows how to release to the breath. But my God, we can do that on the out-breath because that's a sigh. And we've named that and we can feel a sigh sometimes. But to release the body to the in-breath, I mean, here's English with maybe more words than any other language, and there's no word for releasing the body to the in-breath because we are such a bound, individuated, separate sense of I in the world that to allow ourselves to be infiltrated by the unknown is sort of unacceptable. To release to that is unacceptable. But then you begin to find gently, 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 how the body can release to the in-breath. And then you begin to feel a wave of release through the body. And, and so it begins. It's like baby steps. And to give value to subtlety. There's a line, I think, in New Self, New World, be still and know that life is subtle. And, you know, the deepest experience of your intimacy is a subtle experience. And to trust, bring your awareness to more and more sensitized subtlety is a glorious, rich journey. And every, every practice I do, you know, I do because it feels better. It feels better to release the body to the breath it feels better to let your body's energy rest on the earth it feels better to be centered in the body rather than up in the head so so the tipping point what helps carry people is recognizing that it feels better and wanting more now there's an impediment there because the modus operandi of our culture says if I can get through this, I will feel better later. And you struggle to get through this, and then there's something else to struggle to get through, and later never comes, and we don't give ourselves permission to feel good in this moment, to come to rest in the body, on the earth, in the present, which always feels good. And so to recognize that you, you withhold permission to feel good and then say, well, fuck that. I'm going to, I'm going to find another way of being. I'm going to allow myself to feel good now and see where that takes me.
0: It's interesting. As you were speaking, I was went into a state of remembrance and, um, and I feel as though sometimes it has something to do with the degree of trauma that a person's carrying because, During a very activated somatic psych phase when I worked with Lohan and did the Graf stuff and and did a lot of table work, massage work, hours and hours of peeling layers of armor, armor, so much armor. And that's where I learned that vigilance and vulnerability made very strange bedfellows. Impossible bedfellows. It was impossible then for me to open any part of the body without encountering emotion, feeling. Related to events that were encoded in that part of the body. Everything that Al Owen talked about in bio. It wouldn't matter what choice I made, what notion I had, what idea I had of something, the body had its own idea. And, and I wanted that. I wanted to thaw out the body through the exercises and through the body work, come into contact with all the unsaid material, all the unreleased material, all the unscreamed material all the unfucked you, fuck you material. And after a long phase like that, I began to experience my body kind of like the way I felt you just described it, where I could just feel good in my body without having to deal with uncomfortable emotions rooted in old unresolved experience. So I think it's important because I want, you know, I mean, we want everybody to be able to come on in again that if you experience an enormity of emotion, just simply breathing a little bit more deeply into your chest, that's where you are. And you have to be there. You, you can't jump steps. And, and it may be very necessary. You know, I remember I would, I would go work with Alexander Lowen, who was the co-founder of Bioenergetics, and he was very elderly, and he was still tantrum-kicking 300 times every morning. And I said, why are you still doing that? Are you discharging your childhood material? And he said, no, it's always that. But he said, no, it's cultural. I'm, you know, it's this culture is disembodied and I'm discharging so I can come back into my body. But then I would, so I would go and sit down with him. He had these like dirty old dank chairs where we'd sit and stare at each other. And he was absolutely brilliant at knowing how long people needed to sit in the chair and talk from their minds with him before they were going to feel safe enough and comfortable enough get in the room and do the very seriously deep, dark shadow work within the body itself. He was brilliant at it. And at some point with me, he would say, "He would say, is it time? Are you, are you ready yet? And I knew what he meant. And for many of us, it had to start with the mind. And then we start with grounding and vibration long before we get to tantruming and hitting the cube and going over the breathing stool because it had to feel safe enough to move in increments and it took years before I could really feel wonderfully free and liberated just going for a walk using the washroom having a meal felt absolutely wonderful but first I had to deal with the emotional material that was held in the armored musculature because it was irrefutably present until it wasn't
1: yeah yeah Yeah, I mean We need to unpack, we need to reframe, we need to name what is there, or you're never gonna deal with it. That's crucially important. You know, in my work, you know, I am naming our cultural biases, our trauma. I mean if if the chief characteristic of trauma is a dissociation from the body, then let's begin by recognizing that we are all traumatized. We have all dissociated from the body. We live in our heads. Let's start there and feel the pain of that and feel the the loss, the grief of that. And what does it mean then to come back to your life? What does it mean to come back home to your body, to yourself? And that's, you know, once you reframe that journey, well, then the incentive is there. Beautiful.
0: You know, Philip, the way I think of you, and I do think of you often, is that I feel as though you have done something that is very rare in my experience. You have somehow mastered two things that never seem to exist very deeply in one individual. The capacity for brilliantly articulating our challenges in this world and the capacity to beautifully articulate a path home. And I am Truly, uh, you know, you are one of the few people in the world doing this work who give me hope for this humanity. So I thought I'd close with a quote from you and a quote from me. This is from uh, Radical Wholeness. When you soften into the present, you soften into the whole. You surrender to it so that the fluid reality of what is might touch your core and live there. Clear, tangible resonant. When that happens, when you restore the awareness of your core to the intimate touch of the present, the feeling you have is not that you are living in the present. Instead, you experience the present living within you, which of course it always does. The vivid, wordless intimacy with which you feel it attunes your core to its kinship and guidance. It is embodied. That's from the Stepping Outside the Story chapter in one of the most important books, in my view, ever written. And I'm not exaggerating Radical Wholeness, the Embodied Present, and the Ordinary Grace of Being. And a quote from my book, Articulations presence of a great articulator from page 27 and this quote tells me that you and i have landed roughly somehow from our disparate backgrounds in the same ballpark it's not all in your head it's all in your heart it's all in your feet it's all in your hips it's all in your shoulders it's all in your breath it's all in your body anything unattended to unresolved, unhealed, and unprocessed lives in your tissues, your cells, your musculature. It may be manifest in your thinking, but it doesn't begin there. The mind does not source itself, body does. The trick is to not try to shift your thinking from within the mind itself, you can't. You may be able to subdue it there, but you won't be able to resolve it. Because the troubling thoughts are merely a symptom of the deeper issues. They're a reflection of our emotional holdings and constricted musculature. They emanate from the fleshy trauma tunnels that we dug in order to survive this world. Many of us sit in the waiting room of awakening for decades, waiting impatiently for our new birth. Yet it never arrives because we're looking for it where it isn't, within the mind itself. Babies aren't born that way. You have to go down into the depths of the body to bring a new birth to life. Down, down, down into the alchemical chambers of new thought, your magnificent body. This is where we are born again. Close quote. So thank you.
1: Oh, Jeff, I just thank you for those two readings. I mean, they (laughs) just sit together so beautifully, so beautifully. Nice. My if, goodness. Like a walk on Toronto
0: Island. i will have one soon. Mm. Thank you for joining me on the Enrailment Hour, Philip, and for all you do to remind us, perhaps I should say rebody us,
1: of what's possible. Thank you. Ah uh, Jeff, my great pleasure. Thank you. And thanks everybody for listening. See you next week. The dark is all around me, but I'm so glad it found me. Over the moon and through stars Arrows come straight for my heart